We've had a wonderful week together. I came early to just take it all in. The fact that we were down in Florida helped encourage me too. But it's just been a delight to be with you and we're filled. I don't know how much more we can take. But I want to encourage us as we go home. And I thought of an important question that's in the Bible. And that question, it says this. It says, now what shall we do? You know, there is that experience of um, the Apostle Paul after the Lord touched him. He said, Lord, what will you have me to do? When the nation of Israel heard the preaching of the gospel of Christ, it says they were moved in their hearts and they said, now what shall we do? I counted six or seven other times that happens. That would be an interesting thing to study. Now what shall we do? What do we take home? We've heard so much about it's the work of God and we need Him to do the work in revival. But there is still something we need to do and we've been reading and and learning about that. And something that really helped focus my thoughts was a comment from Campbell Morgan. He said this, revival cannot be organized. Isn't that good? You can't schedule revival. But we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. God is going to do the work, but we can get the boat ready and make sure the sails are up. And so our lesson this morning is leaders lead and sheep follow. Such a simple little expression, but it's so rich, something we need. I want to bring this home now to the the focus of our conference on revival is for those who've gathered here as leaders and workers and elders in the local assemblies. But you see, there's two parts to it. Not only do leaders lead, but also the fact that sheep follow. That's important. And for example of that, I want you to turn to Acts 16, please, and verse 9. Acts chapter 16 and verse 9. The Apostle Paul, and we've been hearing a lot of these thoughts. All I'm going to read, really doing is highlighting everything you've already heard. It's amazing what you'll see, how some of these thoughts are right in line with everything we've heard, how the Lord prepares us. Paul was going to encourage these saints that had already been established in local fellowships, but the Lord redirects him. And look at verse 9 of Acts 16. It says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia beseeching him and saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision... Immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. Paul saw something that no one else saw. Now his vision was supernatural, but I think it shows a really important principle of leadership. You know, leading really is vision. If you're going to lead someone, you're going before them, but you have to know what's ahead to be a guide for them. And I think that's what Paul did. You know, one of the words for a leader is an overseer, where they can look out and beyond and see what the sheep need and what is ahead. And that's what Paul did. And it's interesting as he makes his journey how this idea of vision comes to light. Look what he saw when he came to the city of Athens. It says in Acts 17, His spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Paul saw something that others didn't see. I'll be honest, if I visited Athens, I would say, wow, look at that architecture. It's still around today. Look at these important philosophers, the greatest minds. Look at that beautiful artwork. Those statues are the best. They're the model of classical beauty. You know what Paul said? All I see is idolatry. He saw something they didn't see. And you know what? That's what the Lord Jesus saw too. 
says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. He saw them wandering aimlessly. And I think one of the things that we need to keep before us is this idea of vision. And make sure we understand we're not talking about some strange experience. We're talking about seeing things from a higher perspective. How does God view things? What is he seeing? And we would like to have that before our eyes too. I love what William Carey said, Ask great things of God. Attempt great things for God. We can look higher. We can see more. Now look in chapter 17 what Paul does. After he visits Philippi in verse 1, he comes now along in verse 1 and says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Watch this now. Verse 4, And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks a great multitude and of the chief women not a few. What a wonderful thing happens in this city. And as we've been thinking about it and the work that we are to do, I want to leave us with some thoughts. And as I said, many of these have already been covered. And I think the first thing that we see what Paul did was the idea of seeding revival. Put it out there. That's my thought. That's what this conference has done. When you came here, you were thinking about it. But now it has just filled our minds, hasn't it, and our hearts. And I think this is a very simple thing you can take home with you. Just put it out there. And once you do that, it's amazing about our minds. Others think about it. And for those who aren't even considering it, the idea of seeding it and planting that idea, God did that with Paul, and now he brings it along, and he was faithful to that vision. Now, you might remember what happened before here. He was just in prison in Philippi. But that didn't deter him from the vision. He kept going, and he moves on to the next stop. But I really love an expression here in Acts 17. It's the expression of the unbelievers. You know what they said? They said, these that have turned the world upside down are come here too. Who are these? They're just a few men. But look at the effect it had. They've turned the world upside down. And as I thought about that, I wondered, if that's the view of the unbeliever, what can we say? Can't we say, no, they turned the world right side up to see God, to see the Lord Jesus Christ? As soon as this happened, riots broke out. It was a horrible time to be a believer. It was also a great time to be a believer. And they had to get Paul out of the city. And so he's left there now. He's left them there without a human leader. And he's concerned and he wonders what's going to happen to them. He sends Timothy. He hears some encouragement. And by the time Paul gets to Corinth, he sits down and he writes what many think is his first letter to the church. One of the first letters written to an to the church. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians now for our study this morning. Perhaps not the passage you would think of that we might be considering, but look for these principles here of leading and following as we read the first chapter together. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father, And in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. 
and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you were an example to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. You know, as we've been thinking about revival, I think we've been reminded in the last few messages, specifically revival is for those who were alive, have died, and need to be brought back to life. Now, when that happens, evangelism occurs. So you'll always see people getting saved as a result. But specifically, we're talking about the believer here. And I know this story recounts the gospel coming to these believers, but remember, this is written to those who are saved. This is a letter to the believers. And I think you'll see in this letter some of those same interests and principles of leading and following as the Lord would prepare our hearts should he desire to send revival among us. And look how he begins in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. We saw the first thing was that the idea to seed the revival. And the second thing, as Paul goes to prayer, is the idea we need to plead revival. Crying out to God how helpless we are and what we need. But I love what Paul does with the believers. He thanks the Lord always for all of them. His desire was to thank the Lord. I love the uh, expression of E.M. Bounds. He said, only God can move mountains, but faith and prayer move God. Only God can send a revival. But we have a resource. We can move the heart of God with the prayer of his people. He prayed for them and it says, He remembered without ceasing. He was constantly remembering something in these believers. And what was it? There are these three things. I put them before you. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. Your work of faith. Paul was thanking them for their salvation and what happened since. No, not just specifically here how they were saved. They were saved, of course, by grace through faith. But how that faith worked itself out in their lives. A number of brothers have quoted D.L. Mooney for some reason in this conference. It just seemed to fit. And here's what he said, and it really helped me. He said, we work because we are saved. We don't work to be saved. We work from the cross not toward the cross. What a help to understand that. And so you see what Paul is doing? He's bringing them back. He's bringing them back to where they started. Revival will bring you back to your beginnings. You know, that's what the prophets of the Old Testament often did. They were getting Israel to think of the old message a call to go back to the Lord's way and said, turn back, seek the Lord. If we'll see revival, we can help by reminding those of who they are in the Lord, that they've been cleansed, they've been washed, they've been separated to the Lord. Because we do forget. I was here this Sunday morning at the meeting here, and after the meeting, I was taken out to dinner by... We call it dinner in Minnesota. It's really lunch. (laughs) But I went with Sid and Hazel Johnson from the meeting. They took me out. And I just sat there and listened to the stories of their life. It delighted me. Everything I was thinking about in this message was lived out in their life. And it captured me when Hazel said, I still remember when I was 14 years old. 
And I was at that gospel meeting, and I left, and she said, I was as light as a feather. (laughs) She hadn't forgotten. And isn't that what we need? To be reminded of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a work of faith. And then he says, it's a labor of love. Your work for the Lord Jesus and serving him out of love for him. Notice, though, it's labor. Our brother reminded the work. I loved when our brother said he gets to the airport and he's just, he's spent. If we're going to see revival, it will take all of us to be tireless, to labor, to work hard. And you see that in all these expressions, don't you? A work of faith, a labor of love. And we can bring those individuals whose hearts have grown cold back to the days and remind them of how they serve the Lord. And then he says, your patience of hope. Your patience, your endurance, your being able to endure underneath something is the idea. Under pressure. And we know what that pressure was. It was the pressure of being persecuted. But even though they were persecuted, they could be patient. Why? Because they had a hope. They had something before them, something to see, something of vision that they knew of, that the Lord would help them. And you know, I think a big problem today is people look around in the church and they see there's just no hope. It looks hopeless as things are going worse. And we need to be reminded of what God has before us. Faith, love, and hope. These things hit me as really important. I looked at how Paul used it at the end of chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians. Notice it here. It says, And now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Do you notice it's the same three things he mentioned in Thessalonians. The only thing different is the order. But why is he bringing up these three? Notice what he says. And now abides faith hope, and love. They're permanent. They're lasting. They're eternal. What kind of a revival do we want? You could tell the stories as I could of those friends of ours and even in our own hearts. When we were brought in and excited again about the things of the Lord only to see after some time that diminish. As that happens time and time again, we get sick of it and say, no more, Lord, we want it lasting. And let's focus on these permanent, eternal things. And I think within them you'll see it's not just these qualities. But as we've been learning, it's what these qualities do to us. They cause us to work and to labor and to be patient. So how is it that Paul works as a leader? He works as a shepherd. And I think what we're going to see in this chapter, he does everything that God expects his shepherds to do. And the delight to my heart is when you see what we are doing as leading people, as God has asked us, we're doing the same things that we need to do to encourage revival. And I think throughout the rest of this chapter now, we'll see those three ideas come to light. And the first one I mentioned was the work of faith, the work of faith. Look at verse 5. He said, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. What is the next thing that Paul does? We saw it was to seed revival and then plead revival. And the third thing here is to feed revival. To feed the sheep. And he begins with the word of God. There will be no revival, we have heard, without the Word of God. It must be presented faithfully. And that's exactly what Paul did. If you remember what we read back in Acts 17, it said, Paul went into the synagogue as his custom was and reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He went right to the Word of God and he taught them the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it compelled them to change But it wasn't just some textbook kind of teaching that he gave, for he says the word came in three different ways. 
And the first way that it came was in power. It was real. It was gripping. It was life changing. And that's what it will take. It is a living word that cuts to the heart about our sin. The heart is hard to reach. It takes power to bring the heart back to life. You've all seen, I'm sure, the image of someone whose heart is stopped and they put the paddles on their chest and they give them this great shock of electricity to bring the heart back into rhythm. At work, I was working for a client who makes those things, but not that go outside of your heart. It goes inside of your heart, underneath your skin in your chest. Now, it's not a pacemaker. It's an implantable defibrillator. And the idea is these individuals' hearts are in such danger, if they have this bad rhythm, within a minute they could be dead. And so what it does is it senses that and it sends a little pulse of electricity. But you know, sometimes that doesn't work. So then it just has to hit them with a a jolt of, of power to bring the heart back to life. We were making a video of one of the patients and she described her story with the device. She said, I was on the phone talking to a friend of mine and my heart went into its arrhythmia. The device sensed the trouble And it sent a shock into my chest. She said it felt like a horse kicked me in the chest. She said the phone in my hand flew out and it hit the wall on the other side of the room. (laughs) But it saved her life. That's what it takes, power to change the heart. What was it that revived Lazarus from the dead? It was the power of the Word of God. The Lord Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. It came in power. But it also says it came in the Holy Spirit. And I think the reason this is given in my mind is not to confuse us with man's power. Because man can be powerful in their words. They can convince and and really change people's thinking. But that cannot revive those who are asleep or those who are dead. It will take the power of the Spirit. The preaching that we have must be Spirit-powered preaching. Look for that. Find that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in one third way it came here, and I love this one, it came in much assurance. Don't you like that? The Thessalonians did not doubt it. Well, Paul, I'm not so sure. That's pretty far-fetched. No, they received it. It says a number of times in, in this letter, they received it as the Word of God. They, were, they believed it. They were convinced of it. Because Paul brought it in a convincing way. He was convicted of the truth of God. And this is the kind of preaching that we need too. Someone who is confident of what the Scripture says. It's amazing what the power of the Word of God can do. But you know what that power does? It doesn't really make us all excited and crazy in in one way. It can bring us great excitement. But there's also a simplicity to it. And there's an expression in the book of Nehemiah that has really helped me in understanding this idea of feeding the sheep. You know, in that time of great revival there, as Ezra imagined standing up and reading the Word of God and all the people stood up, in verse 8 of Nehemiah 8.8 it says, So they read in the book of the law distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading." You know what this power does? It causes us to understand what the Scripture says. Now, this was important to me. Because I've heard all my life many, many messages, and I must say a lot of times I didn't understand what was being said. It troubled me that I wanted to know what it was saying, but, you know, we get off on on metaphors and stories, and, and I really just wanted someone to teach me what this means. But every now and then someone would come by, And they just very simply opened the Word of God. And I understood what it meant. I got the sense of it. And then you know what? We know what to do because of it. When we understand what the Word says. I think that's when real growth can happen. And maybe you've had this delightful experience that I've had. If you've shared the truth of the spiritual gifts with another believer, 
who have never really understood them before. And they see maybe for the first time what God has done in their life by giving them an ability from him to serve in the body of Christ. It can wake them up out of their sleep. And now they have a purpose and focus for their life. That's the power of the Word of God. And I think one of the best ways to do this is to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. Back in uh, Minnesota, I've been going through the story of Elijah for two years. Verse by verse, week by week. You know what the people say? What's Elijah going to do next? (laughs) They they know the story. But they get interested and they want to learn and helping them understand it in its context. In the Revised Standard Version of Psalm 19.7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's the word of God that turns us back, converts us, and returns to him. There's an interesting expression. I was with Brother Jim McCarthy last May. And he said this little comment that is a well-known thought, but it stuck with me in its simplicity. He said, healthy sheep produce lambs. We say, of course they do. But think about it in the context of feeding revival and feeding the sheep. If you feed proper nourishment, proper food, where the sheep are healthy, naturally they will reproduce. That's God's plan for growth, isn't it? And so this focus on teaching and preaching the clear word of God. And so that was the work of faith. But then as he move on, moves on, I think he's going to move on to what I would explain as the labor of love. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. The next thing we see is not just what Paul said, but how he lived his life. And that was important too. He loved them. He cared for them. He met their many needs. You know, truly, if you love someone, it's seeing that they have a need and you want to know, how can I reach and help them with that need? That's the next thought here. Because of the great need for the sheep, for all of us, there's a need that is met by the love of, of the shepherd. Paul really cared for them and it showed. They knew that he cared for them. And that warmth of heart to the sheep can actually bring them back from a coldness. His words were not hollow. He showed them that he cared. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Here's an explanation of it. The whole chapter is about what he's done in this regard. He said, We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. He was gentle with them as a nurse is with her children. And then as he moves down to verse 11, he says, you know how we exhorted and encouraged and charged you, every one of you, as a father doth his children. The leaders cared for the sheep. If there will be a revival, the shepherds must love the sheep. And I wonder, as the sheep look at their leaders, are they saying, there's something that I want. I want your life. That's what I want. And as we see what happens here, I think we're getting now to the heart of this message. Look at verse 6. Paul says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. Not only is the idea there to seed revival and to plead revival and to feed revival and the need of revival, this is our thought this morning. The shepherds need to lead the hearts of the sheep to be prepared for revival. The work of the shepherd. How do we really know that they loved them because they led them. You know, we can be nice all the time, and that's important. We can be friendly. But if you really love the sheep, you will lead them. 
You will guide them. And they lived in a way before the Thessalonians that they saw, and they said, that's something we want. We want to follow that. And so Paul says, you became followers of us and of the Lord. You know, when I first read that, maybe you cringe a little bit like I do. Paul, why are you even bringing yourself into that picture? Why not just say, I want you to follow the Lord? But I think there's a really good reason. What was the first thing that these individuals saw? The Lord Jesus wasn't here on earth. They saw the life of the Lord Jesus in those leaders. They were a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they followed Christ, they followed Paul. I think every worker, every leader must ask, where are we going? What is ahead? That's what leading is. And it's so interesting that as you come to the church, the picture that God decided we would get is the picture of sheep and shepherds. And you can rack your brains and wonder, why did he give us that one? And the conclusion I come to is simply one thing in my mind right now. It's this, sheep wander. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And what happens when a sheep wanders? When he wanders away, does he say, where's my shepherd? Where's my shepherd? No, we just keep wandering. You know what that teaches me? It's the job of the shepherd to go after and seek the sheep. We need to teach the sheep to follow. Leading is proactive. It's not passive. And waiting to see if something happens and then adjusting. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples. Come and follow me. This is what you should do. Follow me. Don't just wait for someone to ask you, will you disciple me? I can tell you as a youngster, my personality was not like that. I would never have asked an elder, will you shepherd me? Some people are like that. I wouldn't have. Thank God for you and many of you in this room that have come to me and shown me the truth of the Lord, been guides so I can watch and follow. But you know, it's not just all about leading. Part of our message here is about following too. And it's a wonderful thing to think about sheep and to see what they do they will follow someone who is leading. People will follow someone who is leading. The Lord Jesus Christ said, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Because the Lord Jesus loved them. And they knew that. And so they followed him. And so what's going to happen now with these sheep here in, in Thessalonica is that three things are going to happen to them we're going to see. One, they become followers. Two, they become examples. And number three, they become resounders. Three things that happens to them. And the first thing that happens is they become followers. What were they following Paul in, Silas and Timothy in? Was it how they looked and what they dressed and what they liked to eat? No, they were copying the way they lived their life. The word, you know, is really to mimic or to imitate, to copy what you see before you. Someone said, children have never been very good at listening to their parents, but they have never failed to imitate them. Your children might not listen to what you're saying, but they'll watch what you do and they'll follow it. People will model what is in front of them. But wait a minute. What was it that these believers were following Paul and the Lord Jesus in? What does it say? It says, having received the word in much affliction. They were following Paul in the sense of he was suffering for the cause of Christ. He had just come out of jail in Philippi. I'm sure the wounds on his back were still visible. And now they were suffering. You see, leading isn't just through good times, is it? 
leading us through the difficult times, through the valley of the shadow of death, through the things that are uncomfortable, that is leading. But as our brother already shared this morning, it's not just affliction, because it says, with joy of the Holy Spirit. They were both there at the same time. Simultaneously, it was affliction and joy. And you say, where did they get that idea from? Picture Paul a few days previous in the prison cell in Philippi. His back was beaten. He was in chains. And what did he and Silas do at midnight? They sang with joy in their hearts, being ones who were faithful that they could suffer for the cause of Christ. So you see, it's not just that we have leaders. We need followers too. And I think this is something we need to learn how to do. I'm going to give you a word you might not hear very often. There's leadership, but there's followership too. A friend of mine was a middle school teacher, and this fall she stopped teaching middle school because it was too crazy, and she teaches kindergartens. Kindergartners. I don't know if that's smart or not to make that change. And I, I asked her if it was challenging, and I said, well, exactly what do you do? What are you teaching them? She said, I'm teaching them how to get in line. <laughs> you know what she said? At the, bidding, the first day she said, okay, everybody line up. And they all just wandered away, and they had never been in a line before. And I realized I had never been in a line before kindergarten. But what a lesson to learn to line up behind someone else, to follow them, to do what I'm asked to do. You know, if someone calls you an excellent follower, that's sort of a backhanded compliment, isn't it? You don't want to hear that. But it's absolutely critical that we learn to follow. And that goes for a leader. We have to first learn to be a follower. If you're going to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower. We emphasize, and rightly so, a lot on leadership. But there's a huge emphasis in the Bible on followership, too. A good leader is a good follower. Because if I don't learn to follow the Lord and follow those who are leading me, I will never be a leader myself. Many people want to be a leader, but they don't first want to be a follower. And I'm sure we could all tell stories of some dear young men in the meeting who after years of frustration with the elders went off and started their own work, not necessarily because the Lord was leading them, but because they just didn't want to have to follow someone else. But how critical is we need to learn to follow? It is so simple. We are all followers. But you know, there's a sense we're all leaders too. One of the favorite things I do in a meeting is jot, is jot just a one little saying in the back of my notebook. Brother Steve Price gave me this one. He said, here's the motto in our meeting. Everybody shepherds somebody. It's true, isn't it? You not, might not be a leader or an elder or a full-time worker, but there's someone that you're leading. Even this young girl holding the hand of her younger sister is leading someone, and they're watching what they're going to do. So I wonder who is ahead of me. And who's behind me? I think it's important. Maybe you could just list five people that you are leading and five people that you are following. Good to keep that before us. So the Thessalonians, they followed Paul. They learned from him. And watch what happens now in verse 7. It says, So that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. They now were models of the Christian life. That's a change, isn't it? Young believers. Do you see what has happened? They have followed Paul and Silas. And now they're examples to others. Do you see what happens here? The followers become the leaders. And that's God's plan. That's God's pattern. Think of Peter at the end of the Gospel of John when the Lord Jesus said to him, Peter, feed my sheep. And then right away the Lord said, follow me. 
What does Peter say when he writes in 1 Peter 5? To the next generation of leaders, shepherd the flock, feed the sheep. How? By being examples to them. And that's God's pattern. And it's this long chain which extends all the way back to the Lord Jesus. He was an example that Paul followed. And then Timothy followed Paul. And then the Thessalonians followed him. And then all the region, it says here, around them in the land of Greece followed them. And soon it reached the whole world and eventually it made it to you. It's one long chain. Brethren, let's not break that chain. I don't want my generation to be the one that drops the ball. And you know what's so great about these believers? They could not keep quiet. For it says now in verse 8, from, from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but every place your faith toward God is spread abroad so that we need not to say, speak anything. You can just imagine as they're coming before the, the other people they would meet in other cities and say, I want to tell you about the Lord Jesus. We already heard about him. From who? Oh, those guys over in Thessalonica. They became resounders. That word sounded out is the idea of ringing, echoers, reverberators, heralds of the message. They became trumpeters of this truth. And it spread everywhere, all across the nation. And when there's a revival, a change in someone's life, it spreads through their family, it spreads through their church, it spreads through their community. That's the joy and power of what we want to see. One person spreading out to others. And here it went so far that even the unbeliever said, you guys have turned the world upside down. Three years ago in the summer, lightning struck a tree in northern Minnesota on the border of Canada. It's that tip they call the arrowhead of Minnesota. It's called the Boundary Waters. And uh, just a little bit of fire started, and they watched it carefully, and it just kind of smoked in a bog for a number of days. But then the winds changed, and that fire began to grow, and soon that fire was spreading through the whole forest. Within just a a few short days, even a week, it had covered 100,000 acres. When I went up a month later and took this photo, it didn't even look like the same place. It was completely changed. I even heard that 600 miles away in Chicago, the skies were hazy and people were complaining of respiratory trouble. The fire department in Schaumburg, Illinois, was flooded with calls with people there who were sure that their houses were on fire. The satellite even showed the fire, the smoke from that fire, went over Ukraine and Poland. What's the point? It starts somewhere. And it grows. That's how God's word works. It multiplies. And then he gives this wonderful summary in verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What was heard? What was sounded out to all these lands? That the Thessalonians have changed. They've left their dead idols. What was the difference? They now recognized that God was living. That God was alive. He wasn't just a block of stone like they were used to. You see, revival, someone said, is just a fresh understanding of who God is. That God is alive. And if we want to see revival, we have to remind those who God is. It's a wonderful thing to teach them the truth of their position in Christ. But we also much teach them who God is in Himself. That God is alive. As Elijah believed and he stood in the presence of the living God. Revival can come when we show who God really is. You know what happens when we see that God is alive? We see how wicked we are. And they turn from their sin We get so forgetful that we're sinful and wicked. We get accustomed to our sin. 
It doesn't look odd to us. It just looks normal. It's normal today in our meeting to look around and see people that aren't even troubled by sin. And I think one of the roles of the leader is to show them that sin is sin. To make that clear. And then they move on to serve the living God. What a change in their life. But the third thing they do in this expression is they wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus Christ, who delivered us from the wrath to come. And you see how that fits in with the patience of hope. They waited for his son. They were patient because they knew the Lord Jesus was coming. The Bible speaks of it as a living hope. If we want revival, we must bring back this key thought that the Lord could come any time. This is what is true. The hope of the Lord's coming is what will wake up the lost who sense that the wrath of God will fall if they don't accept the Lord Jesus as their Savior. And for the church that is asleep, who have lost our desire to be holy, this is the motivation to bring us back and to be pure and blameless as Paul charged the believers here. And so you see in this in this wonderful collection of verses here, the three principles we've been talking about. It's the work of faith. They turn to God from idols. It's the labor of love. They serve the living God. It's the patience of hope. They waited for His Son from heaven. But there's one more action of the shepherd I want you to consider. Turn to chapter 5. How Paul ends this letter. Look at chapter 5 and verse 14. He says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. This is the part of job of a shepherd that we don't like to do. It's a protecting job. It's the guarding of the sheep. We need to tell the sheep they need to heed the revival. They don't see the danger that is coming. And the job of the shepherd is to to warn them. You know, it's not popular to have a defensive ministry. That's not the one that people will love. But it's important. Look how Paul says it in verse 6. And here's why I know this is about revival. He says, Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch, let's be woken up, and be sober-minded. Brother Mike Atwood this summer told me that means to be serious. Let's be serious. Let's wake up. Here are these new Christians. How easily we fall asleep. But look what he says in verse 8. And this warmed my heart. He says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. There's our same three words in the same order. This time under the protecting, defensive kind of ministry of the armor of God, the breastplate to cover the heart, faith and love. The helmet on the head to protect the mind, the hope of salvation. We need these three things before us. And here's what encouraged me again as I turn to another letter of Paul in, first, in the first chapter of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 4. The same three things in the same order. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. What an important truth this is. All picturing to us our shepherd. For you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, our shepherd. He's the good shepherd, John writes, who gave his life for the sheep, our work of faith. He's the great shepherd, it says in Hebrews, who gives life, resurrecting, reviving life to the sheep, a labor of love. But Peter writes, he's the chief shepherd who's coming for the sheep, a patience of hope. In Revelation, there's one more letter to another church, the church of Ephesus. It's interesting what he says in verse 2. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. Same three things, same order, but what's missing? What's missing are the the motivations. They're working, but where's the faith? Where's the love? Where's the hope? And the writer says, the Lord Jesus says, I have someone against thee because thou hast left thy first love. You need to be revived. You need to repent and turn back 
Otherwise, the light will go out. We don't have any other option besides revival. But as we do all the things that God has asked us to do, we will see that we are doing the very things that prepare the heart for revival, to seed revival, the vision to see what is ahead, to plead revival, to pray that God would do the work, to feed revival, to teach clearly the Spirit-powered Word of God, to lead revival by guiding those and to showing love and the importance of the need that the sheep have and then to heed the revival that those would learn to listen to the warnings and to protect and guard the flock. It sounds like a lot of work. But, you know, there's something that I enjoyed seeing in the book of Ephesians that God will do. He can do way more than we think. (laughs) Exceedingly. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. More than we ask or think. The Lord Jesus wants us to be revived more than we even want. In 1970, my dad lost his job. We had three young boys, 10, 12, and 13. Times were tight. We got by, but we saw the cupboards starting to empty out. One night at supper... My brother said, we don't have any ketchup. There was a ring at the bell. We went downstairs. There was the neighbor with a bag of groceries. Bought the bag of groceries upstairs. My brother Steve reached in the bag, pulled out a big red bottle of ketchup. You know what he said? Hey, I didn't even pray for ketchup yet. (laughs) God already knows. The Lord Jesus is just waiting for us. It reminds me of the the father of the prodigal son waiting for his son to come home. What a picture of revival. And when he did, he said, this, my son, was dead and he's alive again. God can do that work. We just need to be faithful in following him. Let's close. Our Father, we just thank you for this joy and this gladness we have in our hearts. As we leave, Lord, I must say we are encouraged. We're challenged, and Lord, it's so possible we can have both of those in our heart at the same time. Help us to go home, to be faithful. For those here in this home assembly, we thank you, Lord, for them, their faithfulness of their leadership. I was a testimony of that this week. Lord, for those in Florida, the need of the gospel going forth. Lord, what an encourage that I was even witness to on the, on the beach by one of the brothers here who didn't know that I was a believer. Lord, I thank you for that encouragement. Help us to go back. And as we've heard this desire to pray, to just plead with thee, Lord, that you would revive us again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.